Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is Cindy Nebel, and I am so excited to be joined by my friend Andrew Watson today. Um, So Andrew um, currently teaches English at um, Loomis Chafee, where he has taught for gosh, well, I guess not all at Loomis Chafee, but he's taught for 18 years as a classroom teacher. Um, He's also been a consultant for 10 years. He runs the uh, Learning in the Brain blog and Twitter feed. And Andrew is, um, you know, we kind of connected over some sort of mutual passion about bridging the gap between education and research. Um, But we kind of come to it from different ends of the spectrum, right? Um, So I am probably more a researcher than a teacher. Um, I've not worked in sort of the K through 12 space, whereas Andrew is more a teacher than a researcher, um, although knows a lot of the science. And so um, we're we're kind of both in this in-between space trying to to advocate for, for more conversations between researchers and educators. But it turns out that that's, it's tricky um, for lots and lots of reasons. So um, Andrew's been working in this space and trying to sort of define uh, some of these tricky areas of, of communication. And so um, I'm inviting him today to talk to us a little bit about some of the things he's been thinking about and writing about, and, and um, we'll see if we can't solve the problem today. What do you think? How hard can it be? I, we've got uh, we've got a whole podcast to figure this out, so we should be done uh, pretty quickly, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, thanks so much, Andrew, and, and yeah, if you just want to take it away and talk to us a little bit about uh, a couple of these strategies, um, and we can just go from there. Great, uh, I'm really excited to be here for this conversation, Cindy, and thank you so much uh, for inviting me. Um, Yeah, I, like you, am really excited about the possibility that if classroom teachers get together and share our perspective and experience with psychology researchers, with your perspective and experience, and neuroscientists and their perspective and experience, if those three groups have good conversations together, the result is going to be our students learn more. And that's a goal that's so exciting. It's really worthwhile devoting some energy to it. Uh, to be sure those conversations are frequent and to be sure that those conversations are effective. Uh, and, and you mentioned there's some, there's some problems in the way these conversations go. And I think two of the problems right off the bat, one is it feels to me, and um, we'll see if you and I agree about this, it feels to me that fairly early on in these conversations, it sort of got agreed upon quietly that teachers are junior partners in that conversation that we're mostly here to listen, uh, and that's our primary job, is to hear what research has to tell us and to do those things. And I really want to advocate for the fact that our experience and our perspective is equally important in this conversation, uh, and say say both to people in the the fields of psychology and neuroscience, oh, we matter too, Uh, and also to say it to my teaching colleagues, to have the confidence of our experience, to have the confidence of our perspective. Uh, and to to listen curiously and respectfully to the advice that we get, but also to 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 be comfortable saying we get to speak up too, and here's here's what I think about this. So that's that's one challenge, uh, and another challenge is that the language in the world of psychology research and the language in the world of neuroscience research can be so tricky. 
Uh, and of course, our language is tricky as, as well to outsiders. So learning to speak each other's language and learning how to ask the right questions, that's what I've really been focused on for the last couple of years now is how can we uh, develop the vocabulary to have productive conversations with researchers about how the work that you are doing applies specifically to the classrooms that we teach in. Yeah, so I, I feel like even when we first started the Learning Scientists Project, the, the first issue that you're talking about there is one of the big issues that we came across was um, things felt more like lectures than like conversations. And really, it, it needs to be a conversation, both for effective communication, but also there's a whole lot that I think we didn't realize we didn't know. That comes back to like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? This this idea that, you know, as as subject matter experts in our subject matter, we're like, ah, yes, we just want to disseminate and then share this with the world. But in reality, um, there was so much that we didn't know we didn't know. Um, and, you know, we we sometimes talk about the, the lab to classroom model um, and why so much psychology research starts in the laboratory so that we can really have a good handle on how these mechanisms work. And then we slowly move into more realistic situations and we discover that, oh, gosh, in the classroom, things are way messier than we anticipated and the laboratory doesn't always work um, when we get into the classroom. And it turns out that if, if we want to talk to folks about why that is or what we should be accounting for, it's the people in the classroom we should be talking to. Um, I, I did an interview with um, Jared Horvath. Um, he's in Australia and he talked about sort of the art and science of teaching, right? And that I know a little bit sort of about the science of learning, but then there's this really important art and craft to teaching and to actually sort of taking that and applying it to the classroom. Does that all resonate with you? Is there anything else um, that we should be thinking about in that space? Oh, gosh. I think it's one of the reasons that I always enjoy our conversations uh, is that you and I agree on this bedrock principle, which not everyone agrees on, uh, but this idea that I, as a classroom teacher, I've been doing this a long time. My colleagues have been doing this a long time. We do what we do for good reasons, and there's plenty that we can still learn. Uh, and as someone who does the, the research that you do, you have all sorts of really splendidly helpful insights into how the teaching can improve, but there are also things you can learn from our experience and it's only through the dialogue that's what's going to help us improve. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of different steps that we can take. And I think the, the role that I have in this conversation is to help other teachers learn the language and learn the sorts of questions to ask and perhaps get enough confidence to say, oh, gosh, that, yes, I'm going to try that. And yes, I'm going to try that. But actually, I didn't like the answers to, to these two questions. And so, no, I'm not going to try those two things. Uh, because even though, the, quote unquote, the research says I should do it, the research isn't fitting with what we do in my school, with my curriculum, with my students. And as a teacher, I get to have I get to have a voice in that conversation and I get to make that decision. Yeah. Well, and I love that, too, because I like this idea of, of building up the self-efficacy of teachers in these situations, too, because you know, one of the things that we always talk about is that we are providing these flexible guiding principles. These are not. Um, 
strict rules that should be followed in a specific way because it won't work if you do that, right? If you try to just um, do a one size fits all approach, we are not all one size as it turns out. And so it won't fit all. And so building up the self-efficacy of of teachers to be able to say, oh gosh, I can take this and I can see how how I can use it in certain circumstances and not others and really trust themselves to do that, I think is so important in this. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, there's a it's, it's funny, over the years in my consulting work, I've developed a mantra that I use more and more often. Uh, when I first started going to conferences, when I first started talking with teachers, I was really interested in learning what I was supposed to do. Please tell me the thing to do. And my mantra more and more is don't just do this thing, think this way. I'm, I, I'm going to tell you some things to do, but I, I don't just want you to do the things. I want you to think about teaching and learning this way. So for instance, working memory, you and I have talked a lot about working memory. There are strategies that teachers can use to help manage, help their students manage their working memory load. But more important than learning these four strategies is thinking, oh, wait a minute, there's the potential for working memory overload here. Uh, how do I, with my classroom experience teaching this curriculum to my students, how do I put uh, that way of thinking together with my own variables to come up with the best solution for my context? Yeah, I, I really like that. Um, so I teach in this um, doctoral program at Vanderbilt. And in the class, at the end of the, the course, I kind of wrap up everything we've talked about, about the science of learning. And one of the things I tell them is that is don't trust these sort of one size fits all approaches. Instead, people should be selling you on the mechanisms. They should be selling you on how these things work, not what to do, because again, what to do isn't going to always work. So you need to know why things are working so you know when to use them. And that's really, really key. So you mentioned your your working memory overload stuff. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more about what some of those strategies are. I don't, you might not want to give away all the secrets here, but um, I, I, there's a book on this. So um, if you like this teaser, go ahead. Oh gosh. Uh, I can talk about working memory at great length as, as you, as you know. Uh, so for me, the headline of course is don't just do this thing, think this way that we're always thinking about the potential for working memory overload. Uh, but for instance, I think about one of the strategies that's uh, at the center of the learning scientist program uh, is dual coding, that if students get to process information both visually and verbally simultaneously, what that does is it allows us to do some of the cognitive processing with our visual systems and some with our uh, verbal systems. And that reduces the work. It doesn't change the working memory load. It divides the working memory load between different cognitive capacities. Uh, and so this is one piece of teaching advice I, I have accepted over the years, is I'm much more conscious about the work I do on the board and much more deliberate about planning. For me, a lesson plan is partly a plan of what we're going to talk about, but it's also a plan of what does that look like when I put it on the board and what does it look like when my students write it in their notes? Uh, and I think carefully about that because that's one way to manage working memory. Yeah, it's really important um, because I feel like dual coding in particular is one of those areas that um, gets misinterpreted a lot of just like, oh, that means use lots of pictures or, or whatever. And and that actually it, it is exactly what you said, right? It's the, the ability to, to sort of split um, that cognitive processing. But importantly, that means the two things have to be processed similarly. They have to be, you're processing the same information in, in both domains. Um, and so if you have a picture that is unrelated to the verbal information, that's actually 
adding cognitive load because then the person is trying to figure out how these things are related. So I just kind of like important caveat to dual coding there. But I, and that's exactly right. I've been doing the same thing with my own sort of uh, classroom lessons is is going through and going, okay, is this just distracting at this point? Is this clear how this is related? Do I need to explain better? Do I need to just remove this altogether? Um, and, and so really paying attention and being cognizant of those things, just like you said, is it, is it the paying attention to how to think. Yeah. And, and for me, we started our conversation thinking about how teachers can learn the language of psychology and neuroscience to be better at it. One of the phrases that I think is so important and so helpful as we think about absorbing and using advice wisely, uh, the phrase, I think it's from the world of psychology, is the phrase boundary conditions. And the idea is when researchers in the field of psychology do research, the finding isn't some sort of universal human truth. The finding is very specific to this set of circumstances. So uh, we might look at research and, and say, oh gosh, retrieval practice works. We should always use retrieval practice. Uh, and yes, actually retrieval practice is really very helpful. But when we get advice, try retrieval practice, we should look for the boundaries around that. So uh, does it, I'm a high school teacher. Does it help high school students as well as college students as well as second graders? Uh, does it work for math learning as well as vocabulary learning or for a student learning to play the flute or for a, learning, a student learning to play soccer? Are there cultural boundaries that matter? Uh, there's a lot of research, uh, really helpful research about working with adolescents, but adolescence has a cultural component. So advice that is going to help American teachers and American parents, parent in this cultural context, might not work in South Korea. It might not work in Iceland. It might not work in Brazil. Those are very different cultural contexts. So it's not that that research advice is wrong, but that that research advice has always exists within boundary conditions. And so when someone comes into my classroom and says, yo, Watson, you need to teach differently. Research says so. One of the questions that I've learned to ask is to say, oh, that gosh, that sounds really helpful. I want to look and see what are the boundaries around that research that you're recommending to me? And do my students fit within those boundaries? If I teach at a Montessori school, maybe research that was done at a military academy doesn't really apply <laughs> because my, my learning model is so wildly different from that. It, it was really funny as you're like mentioning, like, does it work for this and this and this? I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> In my head, like thinking, yeah, it works for all of those things, but it works differently for all of those things. Right. And so um, even the, the Montessori to military school, there are some things where, yes, it might work in both situations. So um, I think sort of the the little tiny pushback to this is you don't want to take that too far, right? That you don't want to say, oh, well, it's never, that research has never been done on, you know, students in this city in New York and with these specific students at this specific whatever, that there might be applicability for some things, right? Um, so we don't want to go so far that you have to have done research on exactly my population. We want to be careful about thinking, how might this be different given my students, right? Um, and and so, especially with retrieval practice, a lot of that work has been done in lots and lots of different ways. Now, the cultural stuff, I don't know how much of that has been done. And there are some important cultural differences that might matter there. We know things about 
how and why retrieval practice can induce anxiety in folks. And that's probably different in different cultures, right? So there, there's some things, but um, I also get pushback from students um, in my classes when I'm talking about retrieval practice and they say, well, this study was done with six-year-olds and I don't know if it'll apply to the seven-year-olds I teach. And I'm like, I mean, it probably will. Right? Um, so there, there's like a happy medium that we can find um, when we're considering these things. Yeah, I do spend a lot of time talking about Goldilocks in this, that finding the right balance. So you've heard me say several times, I think it's important for teachers to stand up and say, our voice counts, our experience counts. I get to, I get to participate in this conversation. And at the same time, the work that you do, you, Cindy, <laughs> the work that you do <laughs> is really important and helpful and powerful. And I need to respect that too and listen to that. And if I say, well, what about the sixth graders and the seventh graders? And you say, mm, I got to tell you, cognitively speaking, sixth graders and seventh graders just aren't wildly different. Unless you tell me otherwise, I I'm really going to think this is going to work. I should listen to that. I I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this. I was talking at a school down in Texas uh, about a motivation strategy um, that I'd, I'd heard about. And um, I, I said, here's the research and here's what they found. And so I recommend that you do this. And uh, an experienced teacher, this is a wonderful school and an experienced teacher. She said, you know, I got to say, I teach third graders. Uh, what grade was that research done with? And I said, well, these were, these were college sophomores. And she said, I'm here to tell you all of my experience as a third grade teacher. I'm not so sure that's going to work. So I emailed the researcher and I said, I got this. I, I looked, I couldn't find any research with younger students. I emailed the researcher. She said, I don't know of any research done with third graders. I'm not a developmental psychologist, and I, I'm just not going to speculate whether or not that would work. I, I just don't know. Uh, and I thought that was a lovely example of people bringing different kinds of experience together. And in my own view, does research done with 20-year-olds tell me to change how to motivate eight-year-olds differently? I'm going to leave that to the experienced third grade teacher. And if she says, no, it doesn't, I hear that. I'm not a third grade teacher. And I love that moment as people listening respectfully to each other and getting to figure out whose decision it is. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And and also an area ripe for research, right? That um, that's that's what these these conversations have to happen in order for us to know what research needs to take place, right? That um, the, the teacher coming back and saying, that's not going to work with my third graders is saying, okay, we should do some research with third graders. <laughs> That's what needs to happen there, right? Um, so I, I love that. And I guess that that kind of comes nicely to, to talking about this happy medium. Uh, it turns out Andrew has a book that he uh, just finished up and is, is available now or very shortly. Um, the title of the book is Goldilocks Map, a classroom teachers quest to evaluate brain-based teaching advice. Um, and so in that book, you talk about this, this happy medium of, of, you know, listening to what researchers say, but also believing in, in your own experience and boundary conditions. What are a couple of the other sort of hot topics out of that book? Oh well, yeah. It's, it's funny. I was just thinking of sort of the counter example of this, of this third grade teacher story. I was just telling you the, the first suggestion I have under the heading of teachers advocating for ourselves. So someone comes to my classroom and says, okay, you should, you should change your teaching research says so. 
Uh, and the first question I think we should ask is, oh gosh, that sounds so helpful. That sounds so interesting. What is the most persuasive research you know of that supports that idea? And that question seems so obvious. Why do I even need to say that? Who, who wouldn't do that? But what I find is that brain research has such cultural currency these days. The minute someone says, oh, brain research shows, that shifts us teachers into junior partner mode. And we think, oh, well, brain research says it. We're not allowed to ask questions, which is why I encourage people to ask the question. And, and I have such a funny memory. I was at a conference uh, and the speaker was talking about multitasking, which, Cindy, of course, you know the research well, that there really is no such thing as multitasking. It's just highly ineffective attention switching. So it's a very bad idea. And we've got lots of research about that. Uh, so the speaker said the reason human brains don't multitask well uh, is that the corpus callosum is too small. And I was, I was really struck by that because, yes, I agree that human brains multitask badly. Uh, but of course, the corpus callosum is one of the largest organized brain regions we got. I was very surprised to hear that. So I, I sent the, the speaker an email and I said, thank you so much. I, I was so interested in your talk. That was so helpful. I was really intrigued by this idea that, that the problem with multitasking is in the corpus callosum. What research are you drawing on? And the conference speaker responded, I can't share that research with you because you don't have a PhD in neuroscience. And I really quite love this answer because it means it's my fault uh, that I don't get to look at the, the research. Uh, if only I hadn't forgotten to get a PhD in neuroscience, that research would have been shared. And, and what's so beautiful about this is that the speaker does not have a PhD in neuroscience. So, yes, I'm not making this up. So uh, for me, one of the reasons that question is such an important question is, well, I'll give a counterexample. When a teacher goes to the learning scientist website and clicks on one of your posters, the poster will explain, okay, here's what dual coding is. Here's what it looks like. And at the bottom of the page right there, here's the citation. Here's the resource. I didn't even need to ask you what the research is. You've already told me. So one of the reasons that I think uh, people in our profession can trust you as much as I think we can is that you lead with, here's the research and I'm sharing it with you as an equal. Whereas this particular conference speaker, even when I ask for the research, says, oh, no, I'm not going to share it with you because you don't have a PhD in neuroscience. And this is an easy way for me to know, well, these are people whose advice I want to listen to and, and potentially follow. And here's someone, I, I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time uh, listening to this speaker's teaching advice. Anyone who declines to share research with me, anyone who's not going to treat me as an equal in this conversation, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna look elsewhere for my advice. Thank you. Well, yeah, there's so many questionable things there. I, I mean, and, and I, I don't want to just use that particular example as the only example of this, but anytime someone will not tell you the source of their information, you have to question the information, right? Um, Absolutely. Do you actually know what you're talking about? Um, and and maybe that's you know good advice in general for teachers. If you have somebody coming into your classroom and telling you how to do your job, they better be able to back that up somehow. And if they can't, you probably shouldn't listen to that person. Absolutely. That's why that's, it's step one in the book. Uh, the first thing we do is say thank you for the suggestion. What's the advice? What's the research you're drawing on? And anyone who declines to share the research, in my view, we don't we don't need to listen to the advice anymore. We can we can move on to the next thing. Um, I, I decline to accept the brain based teaching advice if you won't share the brain research on which you're basing it. It doesn't make any sense for me to do. That. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, uh, Eddie, any last um, you know minute uh, 
pieces of advice for the listeners, anything that you want to share um, from your years of experience or, or anything you want to leave folks with? Oh, gosh. Um, maybe ending where we started is helpful that I think you and I share. You come at this from a psychology perspective. I come at this from a classroom teacher perspective. And you have a lot of classroom teaching experience. And, and I've studied a lot of psychology that these perspectives together, along with the neuroscience perspective, all these taken together, if we get this right, students will learn more. And it's hard to think of a more exciting possibility. And so there are times these conversations can be frustrating. And there are times when people decline to share research because I don't have a PhD in neuroscience. But that's okay. <laughs> We're going to keep going. We're going to keep having the conversations. Uh, and the results will be good. Yeah, yeah. So more conversations. More conversations. More conversations. Have them. That's right. Um, so once again, um, thank you. This has been Andrew Watson joining me. And his book is The Goldilocks Map. Um, and you can find that on Amazon if you're interested in reading more about it. So thank you so much, Andrew. Um, really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks, Indy. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.